Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Boddy. And this is something a little bit different. Today we're going to be talking about critical appraisal nuggets because everybody reads clinical trials and everybody loves reading them. Everybody knows everything about them, right Rick? Of course, that's what we do in our spare time all the time. Yeah, just read papers non-stop and we absolutely love it. In order to do that and get the best out of it, you really need to understand what's going on. And so what we're going to try and do is give you little nuggets of information which will improve your reading. And if you've got any exams coming up like FR Chem or critical appraisal exam of any sort, this is going to help you get those key points out there and look for why a study might say something and it might not be true or look for how you can improve your own studies as well. We'll start with something which is common to many trials, particularly clinical trials where we're looking at interventions and that's this process of randomization which is one of those things which we kind of all think we understand but do we? So Rick we'll be looking at a trial that was maybe comparing an intervention A against intervention B so we might be looking at whether or not we anticoagulate with one drug or a different drug for people with PE. The gold standard is this randomised control trial. So clearly randomisation is an important aspect of deciding who gets one drug and who doesn't get the other drug. Why, why is that so important? Well, one of the alternative is to simply observe what happens in practice, isn't it? We could, for example, say that there's two approaches to treating a particular condition. So we'll study all of the patients who got one particular treatment and all the patients who got another particular treatment. The problem with that is that there may be systematic differences between the two groups. There may be one particular reason why patients got a particular treatment and didn't get the other one. There may be differences in the standard of care that they received. With randomization, we try and cut through all of those potential confounding factors that might also correlate with the patient's outcome and that might stop us from making a conclusion about causation. We might just be looking at associated factors. We want to know if it actually causes a better outcome. And by randomization, we hope to cut out all of the confounding factors so that we get a bit closer to establishing causality. So essentially what we're doing is saying we've got a group of patients who will define in some way and we'll allocate them to one treatment or the other, but we won't be involved in making that decision. It will be a random process. And that should eliminate some of the biases which are inherent when we do the analysis. I think that's pretty obvious. But how do we actually go about doing that? And particularly when we're reading a paper, how do we know that they've done that well? Because I could do something like, say, I don't know, people who were born on an even day of the month, I will give treatment A, and people who were born on an odd day, well, I'll give them treatment B. Or I could do it day or night, or I could do it day of the week, or I could do it for different months and stuff like that. Those are all methods which at first sight might appear to be random, but, but are they? Well, those are bad methods of randomization because they are subject to confounding factors themselves. They're not truly random. There might be systematic differences in the care that patients receive in the day versus in the night. There might be differences by day of the week. They're not truly random. What we prefer is to have something that actually is entirely random. So perhaps based on a random numbers table that we can't see. And it's not only got to be truly random, but we've also got to blind the clinicians from knowing what's coming next so you've got to have allocation concealment without that it's possible that you might hesitate to enroll your next patient because you know that they're going to get the placebo and you really want them to get active treatment and that introduces an important selection bias yeah and in the days when we used to use brown envelopes and have the allocation in the brown envelope i'm sure there were some people who may have been tempted i'm sure it never happened maybe you did 
I'm sure there'll be people who'd be tempted to do a little bit of steaming the envelope open to make sure that the patient that they were looking after got one treatment or didn't get the, the placebo, for instance. It's true that when you're critically appraising research, you have to have that suspicious eye, really, and think, well, what could have happened? Could it have been tampered with? And the brown envelope method is one that potentially could be tampered with and could compromise your allocation concealment. It's really interesting that they took a very good approach to that in the revert trial by Andy Applebaum, looking at the modified vagal manoeuvre for SVT. And in that trial, they did use sealed envelopes. But before you opened it, you had to sign it and date it. So that's quite a novel way of overcoming the limitation of that simple method while still retaining the simplicity of a sealed envelope method of randomization. So these days, of course, we have these things for computers and they can generate random number sequences and that can help in our randomization process. In larger trials or better funded trials, then there are clinical trials units who can help you with really quite sophisticated methods of randomization, which you might want to look out for when you're reading a paper. So you've been involved in some of these. At the top level, what would be a really good randomization system? It's got to be individualised for the particular study and the particular circumstances. In emergency medicine, we need something that's really convenient and that we can access 24-7. So the web randomization tends to be pretty good. Voice randomization, where you phone a particular number and you, you get told by a computer which treatment group you've been assigned to also works. There is a software that's even freely available that you can use for small trials like sealedenvelope.com that you can use for randomization if you're doing a trial. So when we're reading a paper what we're looking for is a really good description of the method, description of how they did the randomization and a little bit of a suspicious eye to say oh could that have been compromised in any way shape or form. Let's take it a little bit further, let's have um, a little bit more of a think about some of the practicalities. So In a lot of studies, when you're looking at patients, there might actually be quite a big range of patients of different severities of disease, for instance. So for in something like um, head injury, you might have patients who you want to enrol in a trial for a drug which may be beneficial. But of course, head injury ranges from, say, for instance, in GCS terms, from GCS3 up to GCS15. And if you're truly random, you might end up by randomness just enrolling all the patients with GCS3 to one treatment and all the patients with more than GCS3 to the other. And that can cause problems. So if you're looking at a trial like that, there are methods which you can use to avoid that problem. We could use stratification. So stratification ensures that there are even numbers within different subgroups in the trial. So there might be very important subgroups, for example, based on the patient's GCS. And so we might identify a subgroup of patients with a GCS of less than eight, let's say. What stratification does is it ensures that in that subgroup of patients with a GCS less than 8, there are equal numbers in each treatment group. And that's really important when you come to do the analysis at the end, that you don't have this discordance between those subgroups. And it also makes the analysis more powerful. It also influences the power calculation, so you can look for influences on that. Stratification is really important when you've got a spectrum of disease. It also brings us into another concept which you might come across, which is block randomization, which you often see alongside this. And I quite like the idea of block randomization. I'll tell you why. In very simple terms, what it means is that if you're, say, going to look after a thousand patients, you're going to randomize them. It's possible that you could, on random effects, allocate the first 500 to treatment A and the second 500 to treatment B. And that wouldn't be good for lots and lots of different reasons. I'm sure that'll be obvious. What it does is it breaks it down into segments. So you might say that for every 20 patients, I'm going to have half of them with treatment A, half of them with treatment B, and then I'll do another 20. But the sequence within those blocks is different. Think about it in a block of four. So A, B, A, B is a sequence. A, B, B, A, ABBA 
is a sequence. B-A-B-A, Baba, is a sequence. Or B-A-A-B is also a sequence, Bab. So all of those are different, but they will give a randomness that goes over. Now, a block of four is quite small. Most randomised control trials will use much larger blocks. But you get the idea that any point in the sequence of recruitment you've got roughly a 50-50 analysis and a 50-50 look at the data. And that's also important in trials which stop early or large trials where you have data monitoring committees which might decide to stop at an earlier point. It's important for them as well that you've got roughly even numbers as you go through. So these are concepts that you might come across. You might hear about randomization, you might hear about stratification, and you might hear about block randomization. Rick, a couple of other things I just want to think about. Does randomization always lead to completely even patient groups in A for treatment dream B? Is it always an allocation which works in completely taking out your biases? No, it's entirely random. It's just random process. We should appreciate that larger studies are likely to have less variation between the groups, but if you do a small trial, just by sheer randomness, it's possible that you'll get uneven groups. And so we usually look for that in Table 1 of the paper, where we've got the patient characteristics, and we have a look and see if the authors have done an analysis to see if there are any clinically and statistically important differences between the two groups allocated just on the basis of randomness. And unfortunately, that sometimes happens. It's a real pain if you're a researcher when it happens, but it can happen. So that's a really quick introduction to randomization. Thank you.